Well, good morning, friends. If we haven't met before, my name's Rob Jacobson, and I am so glad that you are here as we open God's word and we hear from God's spirit in a way that I hope and believe restores us and transforms us into the people that God really calls us to be. And I, I don't mean that as a lofty, oh gosh, wouldn't that be an amazing statement? I believe that is truth, that God really does want to move in your life in such a way that would transform you into the person that he's seen since you were created, since actually before you were created. So it might seem like that's kind of ironic, being we're starting this series called Living Happy. How does living happy and being changed and transformed into the person that God wants me to be actually coincide with my happiness because I know all those dark parts of me that I don't want to share with people, and that sounds uncomfortable. We'll get there. That's why it's six or seven weeks long. But as we get started in this, um, I asked some friends uh, to help me out in completing this sentence, blank makes me happy. Now, if you want to shout out, you can. I want to throw some out for... There was a lot of people moments that people shared. Like, you know, moments like hearing my kids laugh. I heard, oh, so many people said that. Oh, my kids laugh, or babies laughing. I wanted to put up a video of a baby laughing because someone sent it to me. It was brilliant, but I couldn't quite figure out the technology. (laughs) Finding friends when you know, when you didn't know how much you needed them. Dating my husband, dating my spouse, dating, dating. Being with my family, kids. Grandkids, babies laughing, again. Great relationships and great kids and a happy wife. Not necessarily in that order. Right. Hugs, hugs from kids, hugs from puppies, hugs from people. It was like, oh, those were just some great people moments. And maybe those are things that you too would go, yeah, that makes me happy. I was surprised, not, not real surprised, but many people describe places that make them happy. Like getting to take a mini road trip on a sunny day in the middle of the week, or getting to be in the mountains, or getting to snuggle up on a couch with a fuzzy blanket and some hot tea and a good book, like, oh. Or the first warm day of spring in the new year. Like, we're just being teased, right? Like, we know it's coming, but, oh. For some, it was food, bacon, first on the list, (laughs) tacos. We just talked about them this morning, and three people got all excited. Pizza, ice cream, my favorite, peanut butter. But, you know, the interesting thing was that many people also talked about taking action. Actually accomplishing something makes them happy. Serving someone else makes them happy. Watching others open a gift that you have picked especially for them and seeing their joy makes them happy. And uh, one of my favorites, holding someone else's baby for a while and then giving it back. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah. I mean, that, that can make someone happy. And I think a few more people wanted to say this, but were afraid to. Uh, a little money, a little more money makes them happy. And someone, someone said to me, some to give away and some to buy a new truck. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think the bottom line is every, every one of us will find ourselves at one point or another daydreaming about a trouble-free and happy life. And the ways that we could get there, whether it's through 
a place or a people moment or food or taking action or getting that dream job or getting healthy or finding the right friend, finding the right uh, opportunity or let's be honest, maybe even a pile of money. But in each of those things, I would just, I think they all fit under this label of what? A what makes them happy. Some thing will make them happy. Not bad, not wrong, just want to put it in the right category. And others of us, I think we daydream about a win that will make us happy, W-H-E-N. Like, when I reach this, or when I become that. You know, a lot of people said, oh, sunshine makes me happy, which is true, I believe that, but that means when it's sunny, then I'm happy. And when we get to have fun family days, but those of us with you know, family know that that's few and far between. Or when I have great job satisfaction, or when I have a job without stress, a little more rare, or even more rare, when the Packers lose, especially in the playoffs, and not to be outdone if you're a Packer fan, when the Vikings win the Super Bowl. <laughs> See, these places that when we put this category of win, this will make me happy, what we do is we set it on this destination, on the journey of our life. And again, it's not bad or it's, it's not wrong, but what it does is it's this elusive end and I have to get there, and when I get there, I think I'll be happy. But in those moments, what you'll find is either you do, and then you just struggle to hold on to it, you're so desperate that it's gonna fall away, or when you get there, you realize that it wasn't there. It moved again. And so it's not a matter of when, or a matter of what, that will make us happy. It might be that no thing will make us happy. Now, the whole reason that we are doing this series is because Jesus did call us to this living happy idea. He says in John 10, 10, that he calls us to a life to the full. And in Psalm 37, four, he says, delight yourself in the Lord, and then he will give you the desires of your heart. It's not that God is a genie that has a magic wand and you can get whatever you want, but as we delight ourselves in the Lord, that's this idea of living happy. And we'll kind of flesh and push that out as we continue through the series. But I believe that just like you and me, and we could share if we wanted, all these things that we think might happen, make us happier, all these times when we'll be happy, there have been people throughout centuries that have believed that. And we're going to look at three specific groups of people today that challenged Jesus on what it meant to live happy, and he challenged them back. And as we look at these stories, I really believe that not only we'll see the challenges between them, but we'll see what it means to our lives today. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn to Gen, uh, Matthew 22. If you don't have a Bible, but you have a Bible app on your phone, you can do that. Or we'll probably have it on the screen, and you can read it there. But you might want to take notes. So Matthew 22. We're going to start in verse 15, and I would love to pray for us as we open God's word. Jesus, thank you for the ways that you interact with people to this day, and thank you for the ways that you lived among us when you came as Emmanuel. I pray that your spirit and your presence and your power would be here as we read your word. 
as we ask your spirit to tell us what it means to our lives today, and then you give us the power to live into that and be changed and restored. In Jesus' name, amen. So this first group of people, and you'll see in Matthew 15, uh, Matthew 22, verse 15, is these people called the Herodians, and we'll talk about them in a second. But, verse 15, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words, Jesus. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with truth and you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So the Herodians are this group of people and the disciples of the Pharisees are this other group of people that would not normally be together. The disciples of the Pharisees, they love God's law. They love it so much that they've made abundant of more commentary on God's laws. Tons of them, we'll talk about them later. But they think that's the way to life, if we can just follow all these laws. And the Herodians, they are people that aren't so much religious as they are political. I know we can't imagine people that would be more political than religious, but let's just try. And so what these people did is they, they said, okay, we're Jewish by culture, maybe even by religion, but rather than think religion or faith with God will bring us to that place of contentment or happiness, we will bring ourselves over here and join ourselves to these Herods, like Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, the sons of one of the rulers that isn't really a true Jewish person and is actually quite a scoundrel if you read about him, kills his, his descendants because he's afraid they're gonna take his throne. Like, really ruthless people, but in a world that's up for grabs, they're grabbing for power. They think that that power, that political power, will bring them what they want. So we got one group of people that, that aren't the real deal Pharisees, they're just the students of the Pharisees that think God's law is, is where it's at. Then we got this other group of people that are like, we'll play the system, and since Rome is in power, then we're gonna play to the Roman power, and maybe we'll do it for the Jewish people, but maybe we'll do it for ourselves. Do you see the setup that's going on here? And since Rome was oppressing or over Jerusalem and the people of Judah, they, they gave them a tax. And so the, Pharise, the students of the Pharisees would say, you know, we really shouldn't pay this tax because we're God's people and God's given us laws and it's really bad. Well, the Herodians are like, you know what? Since we're in Rome, we gotta do it, we gotta pay it. Jesus, you can't win in this situation. It's either this or this. And Jesus comes back with this challenge to them that's both and. Take a look in verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought to him a denarius, a coin that was about a day's wages. And he asked them, whose image is on it and whose inscription? Caesar, they replied. And then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, and so they left him and went away. This first group of people is asking, is this Roman occupation legitimate? 
Because, you know, one group said, we don't really care what the answer is. We just know that we've got to do these things to get what we want. And it's sort of like when you and I are in these situations where we think, well, this is just as good as it's going to get, so I'm going to carve out my little bit of happiness over here and not really worry about what's going on around here. Because I never do that. You've got these other people that are like, I'm just gonna try and ignore those things, and if I just follow these things, if I just do these things, then, then maybe I'll find that happiness, maybe God will love me. And in both groups, what they're doing is they're splitting themselves, literally dividing them. Two different ways, but that's what they're both doing. And so Jesus brings back this reply that is absolutely brilliant. Hey, that coin, that has Caesar's image on it. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But whose image are you made in? You are made in the God, the creator God of the universe. His fingerprints are all over you. Will you give to God what is God's? It's this challenge that Jesus makes to these people who are dividing themselves, thinking that they can carve out their little bit of happiness. And he says, no, you find happiness and wholeness in living as one person in all the different areas of your life. So give to God what is God's. I think the challenge to you and I is do I believe that things or people will make me happy? Do I believe living independent or living interdependent will make me happy? Will I believe that images on a screen, for example, will make me happy, or that I seek an intimacy with God and others that will actually make me happy? Maybe those are questions that you need to ask yourself as well. But Jesus goes on, so we will too. Round two. He comes to this group of people called the Sadducees. They're just so sad, you see. I'll tell you why in a moment. That same day, the Sadducees, verse 23 who say there is no resurrection. See, that's why they're sad. They came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, that his brother must marry the widow and raise up an offspring for him. Now that might seem weird to us, but remember, there's no adoption agencies and there's not equal rights for all. So if you're a woman who's a widow, then you have no rights to property. And so by not having an heir, you have no bank account, you have no home, you have no future, you have no security. So actually what Moses was writing about might seem really weird to us, but it was actually trying to give rights to all kinds of people. And so by doing this, this is a a duty that a brother would do, that that first child born to that woman would then be who could have the money, be who could have the land, be who could take care of this widow, this woman, in the later parts of her life. Because remember, there's also not Social Security, there's also not old folks' homes, and who knows what family relationships were like. So, he says, now, there were seven brothers among us, The first one married and died, and since he had no children, his wife went to the second brother. But then the second brother died and didn't have any children, so then it went to the third, and then it went to the fourth, and right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, at the resurrection, which you should be going, wait a second, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. 
right? You with me? Mostly? Okay. So at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? All seven, since they were all married to her? See, what the Sadducees are trying to do, the Sadducees are this group of people that really came in through the temple. They were a priestly class. They were a well-to-do class. Where the temple was, there was money, there was power, and they just kind of hitched along all the while. The temple started out as a place where God would dwell with his people, which if you just think about that statement, that is pretty beautiful, that a God that is supernatural and ever-present would actually come and choose to dwell with his people and that he would elect priests or a, a group of people that could mediate and in, interpret and converse with God and with others when this God is so holy and these people have no idea what it means to be set apart, sacred, or holy. And so what started out as really good has now become corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so this group of people is often out for God's good, but is often out for their own good because they like the status quo. And if they can stay up and other people have to stay down, then that's what the Sadducees do. The Sadducees also believe in just the first five books of the Bible. So if you want to memorize five, then Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Boom, there you got it. So those are the ones they think are good, and Moses is the king of that era. He's their prophet, he's their priest, he's their leader, and so they love Moses. And so they bring up an example from Moses. Really, that means it's kind of ridiculous, right? Like seven people, which one is he married to? But again, the challenge to Jesus is, do we have to follow the things that are ridiculous or that we think are ridiculous? Because sometimes, let's just face it, you read stuff in the Bible and you go, man, seriously? I just don't, I just don't get that. Do I have to follow that? How could that possibly help me to live happy? That's the challenge there. And I really think it's about a challenge to pleasure or fulfillment through duty rather than through what I want. And Jesus' challenge back to them is, again, very astounding. He says, you're an heir because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like angels in heaven. What does that mean? That means that as great as marriage is, and if you're married and you're like, I can't believe that I wouldn't be married to my spouse in heaven, it doesn't mean that you don't love your spouse. It actually means that you just don't understand the, the love of God that exists in heaven that will be so great that somehow it will overshadow the love that could be between two people. And he says that at the resurrection that people will neither be married nor given in marriage, but they will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, which you don't believe in, people, have you not read what God said to them? He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These would have been the patriarchs, the first people of the actual Jewish faith that becomes the Christian faith in the book of Genesis. These are the people that God calls himself to as he describes to Moses, the person that the Sadducees would see as their ultimate authority in Exodus 3.6. He says, who am I to say this God is when Moses is with this God, and he says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is not a God of the dead. 
This is the God of the living. And so again, for, for them, for, for, for Jesus to challenge them, he's using their books that they know, that they love to say, I'm real, I'm alive, and through me, you can find true relationship and true happiness. I think the challenge to us today is similar to the challenge to them. Their view of eternal life with God was too small. Like, what's the resurrection going to be like? What's heaven going to be like? How many people am I going to be married to? No, your view of eternal life with God is too small. And maybe today that's where you're at. Your view of eternal life with God is too small. I, I don't judge you for it. I'm not shaming you for it. I think sometimes my view of eternal life with God is too small. It's a constant challenge to come back to God and have us let him enlarge our picture of what life with him means. And when we don't do it, what happens is, then we think that seeking my own pleasure is the way to find my own happiness. Rather than if I believe I do good and right things in that duty to God and others, that I'll actually be fulfilled and experience that happiness that I so desperately crave. It's the question of, do I need to look out for my own interests, or do I believe that actually looking out for the interests of others will bring me happiness? Will I pursue pleasure, or will I seek fulfillment for what would be good in the world? And maybe that's the questions that you need to ask yourself too, that the Spirit of God is prompting in you. The last group, the third group, is this group called the Pharisees. It starts in verse 34. And it says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Okay, so you have to realize the disciples of the Pharisees have already gone, the Herodians who love power have already gone, and Jesus silenced them. The Sadducees that are, have quite the power have gone to Jesus with one of their best questions, and they've been silenced, and now the Pharisees are coming to Jesus, and in each of these cases it says, so when they heard this, they were amazed. When they heard this, they were amazed. And now, but Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of the law. See, the Pharisees, like I said, they not only love God, they love God's law. They love God's law so much that they've made 248 positive commands about how to follow God and 365 negative ones, one for every day of the year that you should not do. That's how much they love it. They decided these are the Ten Commandments, and so what we need to do to make sure that nobody crosses those lines is we need to build a fence way out here so that no one will even come close, and we need to keep clarifying that and expounding on that, and all of a sudden, 613 of them show up, and the, the, the best, hotly contested thing of the day was what is the greatest. There were two rabbi schools, and they just would compete about it. It was sort of like the hotly contested executive actions that the president since 9-11 have made. How that's been a hotly contested thing? Well, that was how this conversation went at that time. Everybody asked it. Which one is the greatest, Jesus? The challenge to him was, Jesus, you're riding this wave of popularity. Anybody ever ridden a wave of popularity? Like, you have moments in your life, no matter how old you are, where people... Like, they say things that either disqualify you or invalidate you, or you start to think you're less than you are. 
But then there are these moments where all of a sudden people start to say good things about you. They start to validate who you are. They start to make you believe in who you actually are. And all of a sudden you start to feel better than you are. And in those moments, what happens is we can find ourselves getting so high that we are above the law. Like real life example, when you go to the grocery store and it says 10 items or less, express lane, and you have 12. And you're like, well, there's four of these things that are exactly the same and three more that are exactly the same. So really, if I count those as one, you know, and nobody's there and these other lines are long, or like yesterday when I was driving with my daughters to this gymnastics meet and all of a sudden they said, dad, you realize that you're going way over the speed limit? Uh, No, nope, I didn't. I should probably take my foot off the accelerator. But in either case, no matter what my intent, when we do those things, what we're saying is we're above the law. The challenge to Jesus was, do you want to ride this wave of popularity so that you are above the law? Because if you can do that, if you can say that, we are going to get you. Does Jesus feel like he can control himself in this moment? Or does he feel this wave of popularity where he just needs to express himself? Because everybody's opinion is valid, right? Just put it out there on social media and see what happens. But Jesus is not trapped by them. Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, to love one's God with all one's being. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus takes one of the most famous commands that Jews would pray every day, that's called the Shema, and this is one of the phrases that they would pray. And he combines it with this law that's written throughout scripture, but Right specifically here, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. All the other law, not just the Ten Commandments, which I would say are in there too, but all these 613 hinge or hang on these two commands. The challenge that Jesus gives back to them is this challenge of saying, do you see that your love for God is again, divided, that you think, oh, I love God with my mind, so I don't have to love him with my heart. Or do you think, oh, I love God, so I don't have to care about my neighbor. Jesus says, when you love your neighbor, you are loving God. And when you are loving God, you have to love the people around you. And he hinges it there because these Pharisees, they loved God's laws so much that they actually ignored and alienated the people. Think about when you've done something truly and genuinely for someone else. Not thinking anyone else would see you, not thinking you would get credit for it, but just doing it because maybe it was the right thing to do, maybe you felt a nudge from the Holy Spirit, or maybe you just saw someone in need and said, I can meet that need. I would submit to you that when you do that, there's something that happens inside you that you can't maybe even fully describe, but you would, if we wanted to just put it really subtly, you would say, it made me happy. 
I would say something is transforming your heart in those moments because you cannot separate loving God and loving others. And with each of these three groups, Jesus challenges them to their core about what it means to truly live happy. I think the challenge for you and me in this one is, do I see myself as above the rules? Do I think that expressing myself is more important than controlling myself, especially when someone else might get hurt? Do I need to make sure that people know what I think or what I feel or how I'll act, or do I simply need to step back? Wait. Not talk, not type, but control myself to give others room to share, room to speak to be heard. Can I practice a self-expression or a self-control? Which one do I think will really make me happy? See, Jesus demonstrated this kind of happiness that was this beautiful combination of knowing who you are and how God made you and what you're supposed to do, this goodness, this abundance, and this joy that resulted from this life of certain beliefs and certain habits and certain relationships. And as we go through the next several weeks, I invite you back to learn these specific things that Jesus did. But ultimately today, what I want you to hear is that Jesus, in every one of these very different confrontations and challenges, valued and prioritized his relationship to God and the ability to love others as ultimate. And, if you, and, and he lived happy because of that. And if you and I want to live happy, then maybe we should take this cue from Jesus and say, how can I prioritize and value my relationship with God and others to see a goodness and a happiness come out in the world? Jesus can be ultimately your source of happiness. No thing can really ever truly make you happy, but Jesus and living in relationship with him can fulfill you beyond your wildest dreams. Do you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these stories of Jesus interacting with powerful people, with ordinary people, with questioning people, possibly with aggressive people. I thank you that in each case, God, you are patient. In each case, you listen to the questions behind the questions. And with each, with each confrontation and challenge, you responded with truth, but also in love. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us now, that we would even take a moment to hear, God, which of those questions that were asked in these challenges God, apply to me. Where do I need to hear you more clearly in my life? Where am I looking for happiness out there? A what? A when? A something? And help me, God, to look at you as my source of happiness. Jesus, you provide a way, you provide the picture, and you provide the example. God, help us to trust you. We know we can't do it on our own, and that's why Jesus challenged all these groups of people by saying, who is the Messiah? Because we need a Savior. And I pray, God, that 
if anyone's here that hasn't really thought about how Jesus can save them, they would actually consider it right now. That no matter how much, how hard we try, we can't live out your commands perfectly. We can't live out relationship with you perfectly. We can't live out loving others perfectly. We cannot do it in our own strength. We need someone who's done it. And you, Jesus, have done it. And so if we put our life in yours, you fill us and transform us in a way that can only be described as rescue, as salvation. God, we ask for that in this time right now. If we know you, God, then I pray that you would continue to change us because we would continue to come back to you this week as our ultimate source of happiness, joy, abundance, and power. We love you, God. Amen.